Computer programmers have a saying, Professor. Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, well, English professors have a saying, too. Nick, don't one-up me in public. I haven't graded your independent project yet. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only one to know that you're not sated until you are quaded. I am Jeb Lund, a fatal dose of club glow stick, and standing up directly into a perfectly arranged troika of shadows is the show's breathless Black Widow and your co-host, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello. Ah, DOA, DOA. Like neo-noir, 80s noir, the soundtrack meeting the vibe. There is no more ill-fated union, but I love it. Huh. You love the union or you love the movie? The ill-fated union of the the vibe of the movie and the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> they, are, they are at such, uh, they are at cross purposes that seem almost like a blood feud at times. I, yeah, it, it really is like, it's not Miami Blues. I forget the movie I'm thinking of. Or let's say <laughs> Silk Stockings meets Max Headroom in, in a bunch of different ways. <sighs> yeah. So... I have some nostalgia stuff I want to talk about, about DOA. But before we get there, as is customary, we have to talk about Dennis Quaid's podcast, The Denisons. It's been one week since you spoke to me about this. Uh, and <laughs> have you... Now that song is going to be stuck in my head. God <laughs> damn it. You're, you're welcome. Hey, listen, uh, the, the, the outro credits, we're going to put the, uh, the 800-588-2300 Empire jingle right there. Oh, just to, great. Just to get people coming and going. <laughs> uh, no no so, Salino and Barnes homage? I don't think that's quite as national. Like, I, you know, I don't know if I don't know if everybody in the nation gets Bender and Bender with their nobody intimidates our clients. Oh, God. Nobody. <laughs> Except you us. Know, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Because for the longest time, I didn't know that that Morgan and Morgan had gone national because they were from Florida for the longest time. So I'm so used to like. Oh, I don't know, you know that not, one. It's the it, listen. We'll, we'll, <laughs> there, there's some really great YouTube mashups where uh, because his whole family is now involved. It's it's a personal injury firm, but uh, John Morgan is a Democrat. He's sort of a uh, center right Democrat who likes to put ballot initiatives that get out the vote on uh, the Florida ballot. So he's the guy who's been pushing and like um, underwriting medical marijuana campaigns. Uh But everyone in his family does the ads too. So it's like, hi, I'm I'm so-and-so Morgan of Morgan and Morgan and Morgan and Morgan. And it just, it's like this endless concatenation of Morgans, but nobody would have gotten that like 10 years ago. And now you can put him to YouTube where he's just keeps saying it. I'm John Morgan of Morgan and Morgan, 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 Morgan. So now it's my turn to finally say Morgan, 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 Morgan. So the Denisance, I feel like you might be ducking it. We digressed a little, but I'm going to keep bringing you back. Yeah, the, it just was like less motivated than ever. And also, John, our guest last time, inspired me to go back and uh, go through all of our excuses for not listening to it myself. And uh, then I just ran out of time. I did not have time this week, I'm sad to say, but it's election time, and that's kind of when I get thrown extra work, uh, less so than years past, because of my writing has been semi-dormant, but I wound up having three pieces that I had to work on in the span of about a week, and I was just sort of 
so spent. I was there was no extra work I could do. I I barely got out to Halloween. Uh, I was working like up until the moment when it's time to change my kid into his his costume. So like, sorry, Dennis, you are way lower on my my panic attack priority list. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one. Let's see what happens to his preferred candidate, and then maybe we can uh, revisit it with fresh ears. I, yeah, I would love to have all kinds of free time for that trivial stuff. Uh, that would be great. We can just do, you know, like not doing like seven minutes in front of a bonus podcast and like, tell me what your mortal terror is like this week. Is it, we're going to, here's the chart. The red is when it starts to hurt, you know, like just <laughs> skipping that. Yeah. So DOA, we're we're entering sort of the, the territory of Dennis Quaid films that I remember primarily from being on Siskel and Ebert's at the movies because my mom and I, would go to movies a lot and we were pretty uh, regular watchers. We, I didn't live in a neighborhood with kids. So like I spent a lot of Saturday, you know, late afternoons watching TV and they were always on. And I, like I, I internalized the critique of this it, that I remembered from that. And, and I, maybe I distorted it because this wound up being better than what I expected. Did you come into this carrying a lot of like old HBO rerun baggage? Um, or- I don't think I had ever seen this one. And it is not good. I did not like it. I read some contemporary reviews and was shocked by how positive they were. He's cast wrong. The writing is very stagey. I I just don't, I don't like it. And this is a really good cast and they really try, but I just, no, it did not, did not work for me. Flawed in its inception, I would say. It's very busy. It starts stacking culprits and crimes in the way that a lot of noir does, but I never really felt like it settled into its environment enough that you could accept it suddenly being put into fast forward. It seemed, even in its early normalcy, like a very contrived take on the reality they were depicting. Maybe that's just me being like an actual paid writer to some extent watching yet another another depiction of writers on screen and uh and also like you yeah. know academics on screen that is just like screamingly preposterous and frustrating in that respect like come on you know it's not that hard to meet one of us you can just call <laughs> we'll tell you what it's like i don't know yeah i just this is not i mean there's a lot of different ways to define actor range there's sort of like the tom cruise range where like he can play a bunch of different things but he plays them all in the same narrow band um then the inverse of that would have been uh gandolfini he's believable as a lot of different things and he's believable across a lot of different emotions within those things Mm -hmm. dennis quaid as a former wunderkind novelist turned tenured professor complete with rimless glasses which p.s are not always like the continuity editor just gave up with that after a while (laughs) like there's one scene where you cut to like the two shot and they're back on his face like guys did someone want to actually watch this before you before you printed it no all right fine it's just not believable like his his energy can be you know fighter pilot different kind of fighter pilot cops sure washington lobbyist okay cutter in a college town 
sure. <sighs> like Brett Easton Ellis? No. And there were a bunch of other people in the movie who would have done way better in this role. And then the writing on top of that is not helping him at all. And this like extremely Rube Goldbergian disintegrating marriage sequence that's supposed to set up a lot of things in the plot contraption. I just, you know, these are pretty good actors. Dennis Quaid is pretty good. Jane Kaczmarek is excellent. I don't buy that they ever even met each other, much less that they were once in love and wanted to bone. Like, just not credible at all. What I remember of the the At The Movies review, and I didn't see this, I, th- I might have caught a bit of it on a, you know, a pay cable or something, but I never sat down and went from stem to stern, you know? Right. Um, it, but like, I remember my mom's take and the the Ebert take being, you know, Quaid's kind of like smirky energy or Siskel's take, I guess, doesn't quite mesh with the, the subject matter. And I think, uh, you know, that was, you know, a misremembering. I think he smirks very little and he's trying, but unfortunately, because they make they make the the hotshot writer to be this like dissolute playboy. And like you say, like the Brett Easton Ellis kind of model and uh and so what kind of shines through is this this broified disillusion and dissipation and not like, you know, the the sort of a guy who who spent so much time pulling himself apart in his mind that he fell apart like chemically and physically. There's just not he doesn't really inhabit that space. And instead you get like it comes off more jockey for for well, his Yeah. The concept of uh him inhabiting a space is really gets at it, I think, because the script makes a point several times of being like, but I'm not fucking the co-eds like everybody else in the department. And it's like, you aren't fucking the co-eds. Why not? What are you for? You're Dennis Quaid. (laughs) You look like Dennis Quaid. How is this marriage falling apart, not falling apart because of your dick? (laughs) Like that makes no sense. But No, now we've got a whole bunch of like Harold Robbins references. I mean, here's the the clip I was uh, referring to before where this just seems uh, estranged from how married people or estranged married people or people speak to each other. It would be a lot easier to take if only you'd act a little hurt. I hurt, Dex. I think you know how long I've hurt. Why? What have I done? Hmm? Have I cheated on you? I mean, I'm probably the only professor on campus who's not screwing a sophomore. Maybe you ought to be. At least it'd be a sign of life, longing for something. Okay, Gail, I'll tell you what, you wait here. I'm gonna go out and find myself a co-ed for a quickie. I'll be right back and we resume our marriage. This hasn't been a marriage in four years, Dex. It's funny how that kind of coincides with the publication of my last novel. that's my great sin Uh, i'm not prolific enough perhaps you should have married harold robbins dialogue would have been better not much but we'll take it very very stagey like i can see sort of like seeing this in the theater and being like all right people don't really talk like this but this is the theater and they're trying to do something and yeah i almost would rather have seen this attempted as a as a play 
and just see what what they did with it so that there weren't quite so many very long mechs headroomy shots of him like through a bunch of VHS lens filters staggering somewhere like didn't we just do this in enemy mine like <laughs> I, he we assume that he can convey himself albeit in pain from one place to another Ugh, i don't know D- have yeah, you ever but- seen the original because i have not seen that either no apparently uh, there's I, I can't not much resemblance but still you know honestly if we're going to talk about resemblances or anything we should do the plot in detail because like i think people are going to not know what we're complaining about you, you ready for the plot <laughs> yes absolutely All right. Dexter Cornell, Dennis Quaid, is a dipsomaniacal former literary wunderkind who's just helped his buddy Hal, Daniel Stern, jump the tenure track line and has just slouched his way out of his marriage with Gail, Jane Kaczmarek. Dex smokes in class, refuses to read the novel by his student and new wunderkind, Nick Lang, uh, the immortal Robert Nepper in a pre-evil role, and he can't recognize student Sidney Fuller, Meg Ryan, despite the fact that she's been there all semester. Nick seems to commit suicide after threatening to do so if Dex doesn't read his book, which Dex doesn't. This devastates Mrs. Fitzwaring, who paid Nick's way to college after she murdered Nick's father years earlier for breaking into her house and killing her husband. It also devastates Gail, who is clearly having an affair with Nick. Dex goes to a bar where he witnesses Cookie Fitzwaring get dragged away by British hired goon Bernard. He then gets hammered and wakes up in Sydney's room. He immediately realizes he's got something worse than a hangover, and a doctor family friend diagnoses him with a fatal luminous goo disease. He has 24 to 48 hours to live. Dex proceeds to barge. The movie is an orgy of barging. Dex barges home only to see Gail being murdered. He barges and accuses Sydney and a co-worker. He glues himself to Sydney, and together they go to funeral barge. Anyway, Cookie winds up shot in the head, Dex and Sid wind up in bed, and the mystery, well, it turns out that Mrs. Fitzwaring is Nick's mom. She's a bigamist, and she left Nick's dad to marry Cookie's wealthy father. Nick's dad jeopardized all that by coming back and finding her, so she shot him and her husband to bury her secret, but she didn't kill Nick. It turns out that Dex's buddy Hal did so, because Nick's unread manuscript was so good, he decided to steal it. But he had to poison Dex to cover up all traces of who the real author was. And when it turned out that Dex had left a copy with Gail, Hal had no choice but to kill her too. Makes sense to me, but Dex kills him. Wake up, time to die. We end where we began with Dex reporting his own murder to the police in the form of legendary cop Brian James. Love to see Brian James again. I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's plenty, right? The, the point that we were getting at before and, and right before the summary and that I, I really, you know, I, I have to underline is just, again, like this is very TV movie-ish conception, uh, like a child's conception of, of how an adult's job works. Yeah. And the fact that there's, you have grown up professors screaming publish or perish at each other or that. <laughs> and it's you know, a like, callback. Oh, yeah. And oh. You can, every callback in this perish. lands. Done. Oh, yeah. God. Hey, Killian, remember when I promised to publish you last? But um, just, you know, the idea that like professors are going to grade you without reading your stuff and they're just going to smoke in the room and that, you know, like they're not going to know who you are in a room full of 18 people after they see you twice a week for a whole semester. I just, you know, it's 
it's weird too because the fact that it's about writers and you have these writerly flourishes in the dialogue suggests to me that it's written by writers who are in love with the concept of writers and writing and then to get this like hysteric hollywoodized version of it where like it almost reads like a conservative email forward like this liberal professor lit up a marlboro and wouldn't even recognize a blonde girl well this is from the mind that brought you psycho three so miss that one the thing is i i think that if this had been cast differently like i think that daniel stern almost gets over with this extremely long (laughs) clue in 3d (laughs) explanation at the end and i just i feel like it's possible with a couple of like not even that big tweaks but little tweaks like to the casting that the dialogue could have someone else could have sold it like anyone else who was cast as a professor is more believable in this than dennis quaid although the whole like uh never leave a man behind dumping of the last of the champagne into the new glass that uh (laughs) that tracked with with academic parties yeah if i recall correctly but yeah there's just i mean once your brain sort of rejects the host that is dennis quaid being a tenured professor and meg ryan being a freshman that she's like at one point she's like oh i'm over 18 like oh word yeah yeah. <laughs> like no offense she like looks cute and everything and she's actually fairly charming in this but they ha- like she could be anyone given the plot framework she really could be anyone i don't know what did you think of her in this she was better than i expected her to be i remember part of the selling point for this was i think their marriage or at least their coupledom was fairly fresh in the tabloid mind so here is a chance to see a real life couple getting fake steamy mm-hmm. but maybe it would be real steamy just on camera and uh and then that kind of fizzling and i remember you know because i'd watched interspace a ton and i think you know she was in um i think it had been like three years earlier was top gun and she's goose's yeah, wife and that so sounds right i knew her as as more kind of like less substantial and and so when you see the role that she's designated with here you're kind of going like okay well i don't know as if she's gonna be able to carry like a weighty literature student and she you know she holds her own i mean i think she fares better than he does in in terms of giving the sense of somebody who would be in this milieu and, and fit right in yeah i i really don't see why they couldn't have made her a grad student that she was or an ra right? something i thought that she was too i mean like this would probably be like an mfa seminar so it would be really easy to make her 25 and then you're like she looks great for 25 yeah i think the casting isn't the big solution though that i that maybe you're you're thinking it is because structurally this is not not a funny movie and noir is supposed to have like sass and back talk you know the in this case, instead of seeing him just get like the shit kicked out of him by everybody he goes to talk to in the course of his investigation, like we open with like the shit fatally kicked out of him. So we don't have to deal with any of that. Mm. But there is for a guy who's a professional wordsmith in a noir, this is the least sass mouth clever protagonist for the genre and for the building blocks that go into it. It's not. It should be funny. 
Yeah. Like that's in, you know, he and Daniel Stern, that like end confession should be so barbed. And like, you can tell that with the, the, the banter with Gail is supposed to have this very kind of like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf quality of like this exhaustion of the dead thing between them. But like, there isn't the zip and part of that's Quaid, but part of it is like, this is pretty joyless for what is essentially like a contrived and literary seeming uh, stab at genre. Yeah, well, then I guess you're right. But I, in my notes at one point, I'm like, maybe it's just me. And I had been thinking of The Fugitive um, in the context of the last movie we talked about, Suspect. But this seemed more like a Harrison Ford part than a Quaid part. But if Harrison Ford were in it, you would still have to rewrite it a little bit so that like, okay, you want to, like, you're really married to that publisher Parish line perish like uh, i think the line should perish the one you refuse to let go of is usually the one you should kill and i suspect it was that one in this draft but make him a professor not of writing and literature there's a lot of other subjects make him something less wordsmithy make it that he did cheat on his wife a bunch of times the sort of why of it i, I mean i don't know I think you're right that the it's the literature slash creative writing prof aspect of it that's really the issue and not just that it's a prof generally and Dennis Quaid isn't believable as that because I would buy him as like a, I don't know, a film TA or something like that. It's not impossible to find something for him to do in academia that's believable, but not with this writing and not this particular job. He's got a doctorate in physical education. Yeah, there you go. He wears extremely short shorts, but with like the the gold fringe that lets you know they're Admiralty shorts. (laughs) And they're velvet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Since since we've done our reviews, should we look at the contemporary reviews? Why not? Well, I'm hoping that you saw a little more than I did. I was trying every search string. I don't have a, a New York Times subscription. I do have one for the Post. And the post seemed to have no archive stuff on it. Uh, really, the only kind of recognizable name that we have for a contemporary review is, again, Ebert. And this is another one where, kind of like you say uh, about him, like it seems like he went in there just determined to have a positive day. Yeah. And this feels like one of those reviews again. Yeah. Uh, he, he describes it. He says, the plot is irresistible from the first frame onward. <sighs> uh, what? Yeah. I found it pretty resistible in, <laughs> yeah, in many parts. I, I was able to, ne- yeah, nevertheless, I resisted. I, uh, yeah. Like, I actually like probably the most uh, prominent and, and unabashed uh, gesture of resistance in my house was when Jane Kaczmarek came on the screen and my wife just went, nope, because <laughs> she just hates Jane Kaczmarek. I mean, like she hates her on the simpsons she doesn't even like the judge she played on the simpsons she just hates gene kasmerick i get uh, so it that's that how was... i feel about julianne Moore. it it's a thing sometimes yeah so that was like that automatically kind of took me out of it like well i don't care what happens to their marriage but anyway ebert goes on and this is kind of like this to me was the money quote of enthusiasm doa is a witty and literate thriller with a lot of irony to cut the violence Quaid is convincing as the chain-smoking English professor. Meg Ryan is true blue as a stalwart co-ed, and Rampling looks capable of keeping her victims alive just to toy with them. The last part of the sentence is the only one that I feel like he's absolutely on the money about. 
Yeah, uh, I guess. But I mean, that's literally all Rampling is good for. So if she can't do that, don't cast her. I think you're absolutely right. He was determined to have a positive day. Um, the Washington Post reviewer was Dessen Howe on this, who I think we quoted in the suspect episode. And similarly, but like it seemed very sincere. Like, I think both these reviewers were genuinely charmed and thought that the co-directors, uh, Annabelle Jankel and Rocky Morton, I've made a number of Max Headroom references. There's a reason for that. New Coke is catching on. The taste is better and newer than... than, 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 than. <laughs> you said the P word. They co-directed it. The... A screenwriter also wrote The Fly, which, okay, and Psycho 3, for whatever that means when all of these things come together, it's like, I don't know, like, I'm just wondering what it is that, or what frequency it it was traveling on for professional film critics, that it just isn't, it isn't landing for us, because... Suspect was two hours that felt not that long. This was an hour and 37 that felt like two hours. Yeah, it did. I think maybe this is just my guess. And and this is kind of, I think my attitude toward this being more common than uh, it is, was really kind of calcified by watching the uh, the blogger response to girls, the, the whole TV series, and kind of mistaking solipsism for insight. Like, well, this depicts my lived experience, so this is a good show, mm. rather than this is a familiar show that feels real, rather than being necessarily, like, dramatically evocative in, in the respect that it's trying to be. And this, like, and, and you know, it's, it's easy to do that with reviewers, I think. And I, maybe this is writing depicted on the screen. Ooh, it's good. It's nice to feel reflected. But it also feels a lot like the way that People who identify with nerd culture talk about like the Big Bang Theory. When uh, Ebert says it's witty and literate, it's not. It mentions witty and literate things. Mm -hmm. It refers to it. It's like the Big Bang Theory is not like a show about math and science. It's a show about recognizing things that are about math and science. Like just signaling that you are aware of that as being designated within the category of math and science, or in this case, that is coded witty and literate behavior. Now, whether right. it is on its own, probably not, but within that milieu that has been established in that atmosphere, I, th- I recognize something and it feels validating. Well, and that, you know, in a literature class, and he's like, enough with the Shakespeare quotes, like, <sighs> what? What? But I, I think you're exactly right that it's like... um it's making the same sound shapes as witty and literate dialogue would make. And because the waveform looks similar, they're like, fine, credit. <laughs> like, basically, the movie is um, Nick Lang's novel. <laughs> and they're Dexter Cornell. Dex. Oh, God. Like, really? S- some, yeah. like, schleppy professor is going to be named... Dex, finger guns, and played by Dennis Quaid. Everything about this movie that wants to work actually works in the Wonder Boys. Like, and we can just Uh watch that. Like, because there, you know, you have these guys who are all like literary lions, but only like 30 people actually give a shit about them. Right. Because nobody else (laughs) recognizes them. And like, it, it punctures a lot of like what, what this movie takes for granted as being the legitimate atmosphere of this kind of you know, pedagogy or, or this profession, like 
what they take is like the predicate for the noir. They never really established. So then you're adding kind of a contrivance onto one, whereas like all the mystery and the sort of the anticness and then the loathing and, and the substance abuse that goes into the Wonder Boys is like earned on its terms. And it lampoons some of the same things that here are meant to be taken as like bedrock reality. Well, and on top of that, there's also the problem of you go into the movie and you know the basic premise, presumably. And even if you don't, you're given one of those like, who was murdered? I was. And then 36 hours earlier, like, okay. So in all of these scenes where there's supposed to be tension, you know, is he going to find out who it is? Is he going to find out why this happened? Is he going to get beaten to death in a tar pit at UT Austin? And a question mark. Like, there's there's not really much tension. I guess there's suspense, but sort of related to what you said, like that, you know, certain predicates have not been established, like caring about this guy before you drop a death sentence on him and then being like, well, let's work backwards. Like, can we work forwards? I think that might work better. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of, I feel like this is maybe like the three and a half star mm. thing. I mean, I want to, because it's, you know, again, I'm working off of last season and, and I kind of feel like when I get down there, it's like, no, it, it's a movie I heard of. It's, it's a movie I didn't have to watch on YouTube where it's playing only through one channel. But I mean, like none of the things it's trying, it really pulls off at all. Yeah. And it does try a lot of things. Um, I will give it credit for trying things. I think there are some good performances here. It was a pity that uh, Rob Nepper was not on screen longer before his extremely baroque plot catalyzing self was pitched off <laughs> off the roof by Daniel yeah. Stern. Spoiler. Um, I wasn't bored, but I was very impatient. And a lot of this stuff just didn't go with each other. So yeah, I'm with you. Three and a half. I did neglect to, to mention one thing, and this this is like a peeve of mine, so maybe that's why I latched onto it. But this movie, I think, like atmospherically can be summed up um, with Merry Christmas. It's sweating time. Yeah. What the fuck? You don't think about the fact that it is a Christmas movie, but everybody's sweating at like Arnold levels. Like I feel like in between the shots, like somebody came through with a misto that was about 50% water and 50% olive oil. Yeah. And uh, and just got a nice glisten on everyone. And yet he leaves that chewed on looking jacket on the entire movie, just so you can see the disintegration of his worldview. Well, and also because if you took the jacket off, he would just blend into the crowd as like a regular citizen, because then you wouldn't know that he was a professor. True. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, our professor, how quaity is he? I mean, I know he's not winning as a professor, but did enough Dennis shine through for you? All right, let's, let's talk for a moment about the, um, quality of the quaity. Here's a clip. You know, it's funny. I mean, I always thought death was something that happened to other people, older people, unlucky people, not me. Gail. I mean, I always knew my number was going to come up, but uh, not now. Damn it. Why? Sure you don't want another couple dozen takes there, Denny? <laughs> it's 
it's not his fault. That writing is <laughs> that writing is a first draft, and they meant to go back and fix it. And then it was the shooting day, and he'd blown a couple rails, and they were like, "We're losing whatever light this is. This is composed mostly of glycerin." So, you know, back to one. I, it's not his fault, but it's not a good performance, and. It doesn't avail itself of his quaintiness, and it also can't totally control his quaintiness. So occasionally it like pops out and you're like, not now, buddy. <laughs> not, not now. Yeah. <laughs> but dude, you're in the wrong movie. <laughs> yeah. With all of that said, like everything is kind of wrong with it, but I'm still not totally sure how to score it. So why don't you talk for a while and I'm going to try to make this be a number. <laughs> I guess. You know, it's interesting too, because we have a really naturally charismatic guy and, you know, you think that would be, I mean, to me, the archetype of like, you're going to get the sexy prof is Indiana Jones after he confronts Belloc and Raiders. And then Maybe suddenly that's it's like, oh, why this... I was having that Harrison Ford moment anyway. But there, you know, the, it's a little forced, obviously, because there's a girl who's written, I love you on her eyelids, but like he, you have that one moment and then he's just sort of startled and you're kind of in the moment and you take that as like, okay, that's, that must be true. And here we have Dennis Quaid, who should be just sort of like, and you shall know him by the trail of co-ed. And, <laughs> and he's not like, he just seems like such an asshole, like the sort of person where you get into the MFA program and like somebody tells you, you know, like I'm applying for there and they're like, don't, that guy's an asshole. And you're like, yeah, they're all assholes. And you get there and you're like, I'm stuck with this guy for two years. I can't get out and I have to keep taking classes with him. That is, the, I think, the attitude that you would have. So, like, they really just drop what he would make him, you know, like, you, you could see where his wife would be incredibly resentful that he departed from the marriage because when he was there and present, it would be charming and easily winning. And then you could see why Meg Ryan maybe would go, okay, I'm, a, I'm in this high-risk, terrifying thing, and this person's a maniac too. I believe him a little more easily. But because... You know, they don't really tap into that, that essential quade to kind of get the, to establish uh, why all these people in his life would put up with any of this bullshit. Well, yeah. Uh, you're just sort of going by the terms of the, uh, by the terms of the plot. Or sort of tie it to like everything else that we have, you know, all the other received wisdom culturally, like the Wonder Boys reference you made earlier about like novelist teachers. I don't think Quaid is incapable of essaying and, um up Dykean sleaze that is nevertheless compelling to a certain type of undergraduate of any, you know, sexual orientation. So, I, I mean, this was possible to do. It just was not done. So, you know, I, I went all over that and I'm still not comfy. I think I'm in the same boat with you. I'm not really comfy with a number, but, uh, you know, it's the, I feel like it's a 2.5 maybe on the, the Quaid qua Quaid. I mean, he's not really tapping into his his reserves of you know just selfness in here and the few times you do see the glimmers it just seems so like you got lost on the way to a different set my friend go go back to the door and try again yeah what's hanging me up is this like i'm not going to go that low because he is like in pretty much every frame but he's not great and when he is quady it's not wanted so i'm going to go a little higher but I don't know. Like, and then, you know, he's with Meg Ryan, which should work, but then it doesn't. I'm very torn. Yeah. I'm going to say four. Why does that not work? 
I'll bump it up to a three. I'll go a whole number, but like, it's still, yeah. yeah. How does that not work? It's your wife. Like, how do you, you know, yeah. presumably you got the hots for each other. It should be pretty easy to, to signal with your bodies there. I don't, I don't know. I'm like, come from a wasp family. We don't do that. Yeah. But. Same and same. So, but I mean, I, I married an actor. I'm, I'm told that's part of the job. <laughs> Damn it. Why? Did you notice this is our second Quaid movie in three that has Zydeco? Yeah, I did notice that. Not happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't say it when we were talking about Suspect, but that movie was the movie that introduced me to like the whole an older guy develops prostate problems. And for the longest time, I incorrectly thought that like the one judge, you know, says like, I've been sitting down too long. I was like, oh my God, that's how it happened. Why should stand up more every day? But this movie, like this movie introduced me to Freudian slip. Mm-hmm. And and I had to ask what that meant because like the fact that she has a a pun for her costume was such a thing. And then like you know I remember that being one of the biggest confirmation bias things for me because I think I heard it like a dozen times in the next week. Right. And it really did feel like this is my first step into a larger world. She actually has a nice bit. I will you know I know we're in the Quaid section, but whatever. She and Quaid made yeah. another Quaid, so I guess it counts. Um, she's a quaid legacy right before that um clip that we heard of him being like damn it why she like they're glued together and she's trying to like she has to pee so she's trying to pee behind a dumpster and right before he has this whole like i never thought death would come for me moment they're like next to a dumpster and she's sort of like impatiently or angrily throws her tights into the dumpster (laughs) Which, like, and then the shot pans away from her, and it was just a nice little bit of business there, I thought. But then it's right back to this uh, self-serious, the hunt for meaning with 24 hours to live. Like, uh, this is not your guy movie. Yeah, also, if you're a famous novelist and you're just now reckoning with what death means, like, I don't think you're a famous novelist. I think that's, like, kind of required. (laughs) You're probably doing this from, like, an overweening sense of your own inability to achieve immortality anyway, so... Yeah. Also, that bit where he's like, this is no hangover, and that's how he figures out he's been poisoned. My friend, that absolutely is a hangover. You just... You're not trying hard enough. Yeah. (laughs) I think my notes were like, you're doing it wrong, professor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i don't know how else to play this but i guess we'll just have to go out out on it this movie like i said at the the top the soundtrack was just an absolute delight um, and uh, there was a bit where it almost worked where they have this sort of like choral moaning in the house of the gods sort of doomy vibe and you're thinking like oh there's it's it's evoking pity and then all of a sudden it's like somebody in the studio was like yeah but what about steve Vai?" And, uh, and I just want people to hear it. Yeah. So. I, uh, I was getting an Oingo Boingo feeling. Not in a bad way. Just, you know, it seemed like Elfman was near. 
Uh, not busy enough. I mean, not not nearly percussive enough. For not good enough. But was, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, he said he was near. But, not near enough it, it was nice it's like you know there's you got this moaning kind of like on the fade out of the bowie version of the man who sold the world and then all of a sudden it's like the the news break music for every am sports station and you're like oh my god you were almost there like for one shining moment the coke wore off enough for you to be like what if this fit and then you found another rail and then suddenly you're like what about a uh, double guitars so Craig Carton Barana? No. Next time on Quaid in Full, everybody's all American with former reporter and columnist for NBC's Hardball Talk and a one-man wrecking crew against the movie Field of Dreams, Craig Calcaterra. In the meantime, slam some more eggnog polymer and check out the show notes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid and Full Pod and get even more Quaidy content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid and Full. Wondering when your favorite Quaid joint is getting to business or want to give us yours? DMs are open and Sarah is standing by. Quaid and Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? We're going to have to get some lawyers and get expensive until you go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid and Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. He was a poetic little fucker, though. 800 588 Empire Today.